Dave, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I wanted to do this conversation with you because we, for us, when people uh, speak about endowment style investing or sovereign wealth funds, uh, we take it for granted what this means because we've lived in that in that world. But I think uh, you know uh, uh, people ought to really uh, understand what what are the requirements behind that style of investing. So people know it's long term. People get excited about it. It, it has an allocation to venture and private equity and other private funds and hedge funds. But the, uh, managing that whole machine, there is a, a much more things uh, uh, that that one needs to do. So let me sort of start start by asking you the question. So. You were inside an endowment, Stanford endowment. You set up McKenna and uh, and and Caitlin, uh, Caitlin Fitzmaier, who is who who's also came from University of Virginia endowment. I came from the Sovereign Wealth Fund, and we all and and we all you know have we sat inside an institution that has different things to it. It obviously had had to evolve, but there is there is a process. So could you maybe just describe to me again what are what what's your takeaway from that style of investing and what does it what 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 is required to, to pursue that style of investing? Sure. Well, Hashem, I always enjoy enjoy these conversations, whether or not the camera's on. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, you know, and whether it's on the phone or video or in person. Um, it, it, it's actually great timing thinking about uh, endowment style because uh, endowment style investing because you know in the last week I've gotten the the quarterly reports the final numbers from the calendar year are in and I've you know I'm I'm, I'm remind and and investment committees are happening I had one last week for University of Virginia's endowment and so forth so um, I, I guess a, a few thoughts the first is sort of and you touched on this in the beginning of your question, what does it mean? At its, at its basic level, um, you know, of course, it was a style, it is a style of investing that originated really David Swenson, who led the Yale Endowment from 1985 on to a couple of years ago when he passed away, um, uh, was, you know, sort of the godfather of it. But it's uh, it has a few elements. One is a asset allocation framework that uh, spreads the amount of capital uh, across uh, a half dozen or more asset classes that behave differently from each other, and therefore manages the overall risk and return profile of the pool of capital over time. So you have some asset classes like venture capital that would be very, very volatile uh, at times, but generate very high returns if you do them well. You'd have other asset classes such as fixed income that would play a very different role in the portfolio. And it all works together uh, like a, a bit of a symphony um, where you have different <clears throat> instruments and sections that play different roles. And those roles, um, depending on the climate, uh, a, an up market, a down market, what have you, or certain economic uh, scenarios, inflation growing, rates coming up, rates going down, et cetera, that symphony has to play through those environments 
and the goal is to generate the highest risk adjusted return. So it's not just the highest return, you have to be mindful of the up and down run over time. The idea at the end of the day, really where it came from was um, an architecture where that pool of capital has to pay out more or less about 5% of its, um, of its uh, uh, size every year to fund some institutions, some other things. So the objective of the returns is to generate to be able to pay out that liquid 5% a year to the recipient of that, to stay ahead of inflation, and then to make uh, you know, a little bit of a return uh, on top of that. Um, other elements of it are that uh, um, starting early on, it made heavy use of private or, or alternative asset classes, alternative meaning alternative to the very traditional liquid stocks and bonds, equities and fixed income. So venture capital, private equity, real estate, uh, the use of long, short and absolute return hedge funds, these became asset classes. And then lastly, in general, it's a pursuit of, it's a belief that if you're good at what you do, you take your time, uh, you know, it's part art and part science, you can identify active managers uh, to manage the majority of this portfolio. That's really the only alternative in the private asset classes. Private asset classes make up well over half of those endowment portfolios today. Uh, the largest two being typically now venture capital and private equity. Um, so it's, it's active, the pursuit of active management, heavy use of the alternatives, um, a, 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 a framework that spreads the uh, capital invested so that it rides out through up and down environments and produces over intermediate to long-term, you know, steady uh, set of returns that meet those, those return hurdles that are really driven originally from that payout number and a couple of building blocks on top of that. Um, just that maybe um, just to feed maybe sort of some discussion, you know, it's interesting. I you know, haven't been on the inside of a couple of these institutions on boards and and, and in a practicer of, you know, um, my, my core expertise is venture capital and private equity is a core and growing part of that. You know, it's certain institutions in the endowment world have evolved quietly. Many of them have not. And I actually think, you know, I have a, a variety of sort of observations on what I would say are sort of laws or areas that the model hasn't evolved uh, much at all and could evolve over time by the right institutions. Um, and so, you know, I don't look at the endowment. It's not monolithic. People practice it differently. I don't think the endowments in the U.S. have all the wisdom. And I actually think many of them have not evolved and are losing an opportunity to do so. And others will, and I will will gain some advantage of that. And then of course, it spilled over into the commercial world starting about 20 years ago with a variety of managers, you know, outsource CIO, OCIO is the acronym for them. McKenna, my, my prior firm was one of those. There were others um, that are bigger now and have grown more and have evolved their model more. So I'll stop there.
So evolving the model, then now you caught my attention. So so is this like <laughs> 2.0 or 3.0? Could you comment on that? Yeah, I, I, my observation would be, uh, and part of this is structural and way, the way they're run, but but I would say some the criticisms and fl or flaws of its application are that if you take a step back, these pools essentially are 100% illiquid in their structure to the recipient of the capital. They would, you know, those practicing would say, no, 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 that's not true. We can get at X amount of the portfolio in X amount of time. But the reality is for the for the recipients, whether you're in an institution, you know, like the University of Virginia, I sit on the law school board. Most of our assets are with the UVA Endowment, which is a, a phenomenal organization. Um, you know, we had we're only able to get that five percent payout and ten percent in an emergency. So, you know, M McKenna, my prior firm, or others like it, essentially are illiquid pool pools of capital in their entirety for the investors of that capital that you can get a small amount out 5% plus their redemption features that behave like a largely fully liquid pool of capital. And yet the returns. So if you judge it based on that, the returns in many cases are appallingly low. I was looking at one set of returns over every time series, three, five, 10, 15 since inception we're generating net returns of six and a half to low sevens. That's not acceptable for a fully illiquid portfolio because as we know, we can go and create a similar fully illiquid pool of capital and get very high returns, two to three times that number, four times that number if it's purely private, right? And there are ways of building an endowment to have full liquidity for you know, more than half. And, 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 and so I guess the criticism would be taking that entire approach on all those asset classes uh, burdens it with full illiquidity. It burdens it with significant uh, fees and carry because of active management. Um, and so my view is where it needs to evolve is a more intelligent assessment of where can I use ETFs? Where is active management not worth the effort and the fees involved and the illiquidity. Um, and, and I believe that there you know, can be, an, 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 you know, this doesn't happen at established organizations because if you're the hedge fund guy, if you're the real estate guy, if you're the, if you're the fixed income person that runs that portfolio, you want your 15 managers and you're going to think there's some interesting guys doing an X and you're going to build your, domain in your portfolio. That's not, in, in most cases, that's not the right answer for the overall pool. If you're the public equity, I looked at a set of returns yesterday also, you know, the, the, a third of the portfolio was in public equity and it trailed by on every time series significantly uh, uh, the, the benchmark index. And you could buy that, you could own that benchmark index for three basis points. Um, you can you, you can own the 7525 or the 6040 for three basis points and have it fully liquid. So my my criticism of the model at applied in some places are um, 
like institutionally, they're not going to do that. They're not, you know, the, the head person or the board's just not going to say, look, we actually don't need these six managing directors because, you know, enough's enough after 15 years of negative alpha, you know, we should just own the, you know, MSCI ACQUI index, or we should have a third of it, um, you know, anchored by uh, an ETF, uh, you know, uh, you know, a 75, 25 ETF. Um, so that would be my sort of high level criticism of um, the practice of the endowment model that hasn't changed much. Um, and and I, in my view, should change. So, uh, so my take on that is, is that, I, I, I mean, you know, you said at the beginning that the endowment is supposed to earn a return higher than, than inflation, which is logical for it to, to preserve the, the purchasing power and grow that capital. And in the old days, I remember the, the one of the objective would be OECD inflation plus 3%. Right. And when, was the, when that was set, it was coming off a high inflation number. Now in the, what we've experienced over the past 20 years, up to 2022, inflation was 2%. So 2% plus 3%, what an easy walk. But the way I would probably approach what, what you're saying is I would probably say, you know what? I'm going to charge you an illiquidity premium. So in other words, like if you want to do, do private equity, 500 over public equity. And I'm going to also get you to focus on a, an absolute return number. Right. So this way, this way you deal away, first of all, as you said, now you start getting into, do I want to pay, uh, like, how much equity do I have in my portfolio? How much equity do I want in the portfolio? Where am I getting that equity from? Is it from private equity? Is it from venture? Where am I getting the biggest alpha in? Is, is it in private equity? Is it in venture, public equity? I'm not getting any of that. Why do I need it? And then what other managers bring me a return stream that's not correlated. So you really now think about the real the, the real value added in there. Uh, but I but I guess you know from what you described and what I'm saying, it's 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 totally disrupting that old regime where you know you have different departments, different silos, and you have a whole industry catering to each one of them. Yeah, correct. Look, your your first comment spot on, but you know I would say, you can think about it in a very simplistic way. If you if your entire pool is effectively illiquid, then the entire pool should be delivering an illiquidity premium <laughs> that's quite <laughs> substantial, right? Like you know the pool could be just venture, or it could be the entire endowment pool. But if if the illiquidity profile to the recipient is the exact same or very close. Right. Uh, you could you would say that a six and a half percent return just doesn't cut it. It should be 10 or or 12 percent. Right. Uh, versus like if that uh, if that venture capital illiquid pool is generating a 23 percent return, you'd say, yeah, that does the trick. <laughs> right. That there, there's a margin of safety that's that's delivering value for that illiquidity. Um, you know, the reality is these, you know, the private, the high returning private asset classes, once they hit maturity, more or less have, have a payout that 
can be mid-single digits to double digits over the long haul. That's no different than that endowment payout. <laughs> and yet, you know, some of those asset, you know, private equity might get you sort of net low to mid-teens and venture would get you net 20 plus. It's paying you for that illiquidity with a payout that's not, not significantly different than, you know, the payout that you'd require from the overall pool. So I guess my, you know, the observation is the entire pool, if it behaves in an illiquid fashion, isn't delivering on the appropriate illiquidity premium. Okay, and so uh, now we know you, uh, uh, one thing which which you highlighted is is the uh, is the fact that you know they are so uh, so they produce the five percent. And then uh, ninety percent is illiquid in one shape or another. Now, does that worry you if 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 these guys have to somehow need to do a shift or to come up with with, with the money for one reason or another? Say that. Sorry. Say that again. Okay. So I am in I I am in university endowment. My circumstances yeah. change. Yeah. And I, and I need more payout. Mm. So, you know, most of those institutions have similar rules. You know, the one that I was just back for last week, you know, basically there's a formula that produces the annual number that they're going to get as the standard payout. We say 5%, it, there's a smoothing formula and stuff, but it's more or less 5%. Some of these institutions also charge little taxes on those payouts, right? But anyway, it's around 5%. Uh, if you look at the contracts that um, govern, you know, basically at a university that might have a business school and a law school and, you know, uh, English department and an athletic department, you'll, those are like sub pools and they'll have sort of a contract with the parent endowment management company, even though they're part of the same university. But that, that contract might say in severe instances, you can get at 10% of your capital. Um, usually there's some warning. And I would be shocked if, you know, anybody allows more than 10%, right? So it tends to be, and there's some guardrails on there and so forth. That's really what you're looking at, right? Now, you know, that even in severe instances like 08, or, you know, the pandemic quarter, uh, people don't make use of that because there's cash balances and there's other. So, you know, I don't know of an instance where a school had to, not yeah, I haven't looked, you know, around the country. I don't know of an instance offhand where somebody pulled the ripcord and needed that. Mostly it makes boards feel comfortable that in a hundred year flood, they could get it a bit more money, but but it never, you know, that never becomes necessary. And 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 now managing the commitments. So uh, uh, so so they need to make an annual payout of five percent, and then they have also money that's going to be called by the by by the managers during the year. Right, right. And so it's a you know. Um, 
all these institutions have to do that, right? They're, they're, you know, they're good at it. They have data on capital calls in different environments and distributions that go back decades and, you know, hundreds of data points. Um, and so, you know, that, you know, um, so those models are quite good. Um, they occasionally get stretched, right? If you looked at, uh, you know, 08, 09 in those years um, or more recently, they get stretched because we go through these boom and bust periods where typically in a run-up, the high returning and most illiquid asset classes are doing extremely well. So take the last, you know, five years, eight years, just take one of those venture capital did extremely well. Everybody wants more venture. <laughs> so it's hard to get money into venture the right way. And so you'll have these, it's like a step function where there's the rush to commit more and more. Those are illiquid and unfunded commitments, right? And then there's a, um, somebody takes the, the punch bowl away from the party <laughs> and people are sitting on, um, much higher levels of unfunded commitments. Those are legal commitments that they need to make if they're asked for the capital. Now, the reality is the venture funds, for instance, don't invest much during those periods, so they're not calling that capital, but the uh, LPs, the limited partners are on the hook for that. So back to the uh, modeling of cash flows, you have to be careful. You have to stress test these models to make sure that you have the liquidity if asked for these capital calls. Typically, the sources of liquidity are fixed in, a fixed income portfolio that might be high single digits to low double digits. There'll be a couple of points of cash. These portfolios have a bit of a sort of, uh, even, in, even in quiet times, that um, you get a couple points of just distributions that come out of your portfolio. And then public equities, liquid Liquid public equities are the other area where um, you know you, you don't want to sell those equities in a down market, but they're a source of liquidity if you need it. Um, some organizations will have lines of credit lined up for you know five or ten percent of their pool of capital to use in a pinch. You model all this stuff out and you stress test it and you say, okay, if I go through a 2008 market's down 50 percent, if I model no distributions. If I model lots of calls, that, that's typically not going to happen when the world's crazy, but like, let's model it out. Like how, how quickly can I get at enough cash to pay those calls? Um, and at what point am I going to have to start selling equities? And, and also these organizations will have sort of a, you know, in, a, in the event of a crisis, break the glass kind of thing, like, okay, first you get liquidity from here, then you get liquidity from here, then you get liquidity from there. I would say that's an area that I think uh, this approach has excelled. It's these things have survived the test of severe market conditions. Um, not everybody has, you know, some people end up selling secondaries uh, of private commitments made. Um, so there are, you know, there are periods of panic. In 08, 09, a lot of endowments and other institutions like that for uh, six or nine months uh, unloaded their, um, you know, pr some of their private equity commitments in great managers. Um, they just had to, the you know, the board's 
panicked a bit. Um, and I guess if, you know, at the time we had more, more or less recently started McKenna, we were the buyers of those and those ended up being good investments. Other institutions were as well. So you, so all what you described requires a, a, a process, discipline, people, alignment of interest and all of that. Could you just shed light, light on this as in somebody starting a new endowment or even a family office, what are the things that they should be made aware of? Because, because, because you know, you hear now of like an endowment coming up or a family office that's coming up and they, they, they want to do all of that stuff. And you, when you, when you, when you look through at what they're doing, uh, you wonder whether, you know, they have gone through all the, all the requirements for them to make that jump. Yeah. Well, like any, like anything else, first of all, you uh, let me take a step back. The beauty is you don't need a lot of people. Um, you know, some of the best take Yale for many years, ran with one, you know, brilliant head person and a very small number of, you know, kind of, uh, people that worked with him, you know, small number as in single digit people, um, more and more the systems available, uh, the use of advisors and services that'll help you do your job um, are wide, you know, are, are available and, and quite cheap, right? So you don't need a lot of people. But what, I've, what I'd say is you need, you need uh, people that know what they're doing. Um, uh, you know, like anything else you don't want, you know, if you break your hip, you know, you're not going to want a skin surgeon to do the operation. <laughs> uh, they still have the doctor title. They may have gone to Harvard Medical School, but you want somebody who knows exactly what they're doing, has been through up and down cycles. Another one, just on the up and down cycles, I was just commenting to somebody yesterday on this. You know, time moves on and we sort of live in our little bubbles. And But, you know, take today, like, Basically, you need a 40-year-old person or older to have seen the 08 crisis, right? Like there's a whole generation or two of younger professionals that have been, they've known nothing but an up, more or less up to the right set of markets and rates coming down, right? And, you know, if you look at significant inflation, you got to go way back. You need somebody with a lot of gray hair, no hair, um, uh, to have seen those markets, uh, uh, you know. Um, not that many people saw the, you know, late 90s, 2000 and the, you know, 2004 market in addition to 08, right? And so, so um, you might have a brilliant 38-year-old, but they've known one market. They haven't been tested uh, um, and they can't draw learnings. Um, and, 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 you know, I saw, I, I can't remember this quote, it was a great little but it's basically like, like um, to draw wisdom, you need to have been through tough times. So you need a crisis environment and you need to burn your hands on some stuff um, or, or seen others around you. Um, so back to the staffing uh, point, you need somebody who knows what they're doing. You don't need a lot of people. Um, uh, you, you ideally need somebody who has been through, I would say more, more than one crisis or certainly seen more environments than what we've had over the last 15 years. 
Um, and, and, and then, you know, there's other things that are helpful, a government, a governance framework, um, a, you know, a set of basic policies that can't be too constraining, uh, but do have some constraints. Um, basic things like, you know, a cap where you can't make too big of a bet without a check and balance system, right? You know, you can't commit 15% of the pool to one thing uh, without a significant check and balance system. Typically those might be like 2% of the pool to a manager or an investment, things like that. Um, so you need some governance in there. You need some oversight, whether it's from a board or another, uh, like the principal of the capital and so forth. Um, those are those are some of the basics that I think serve a purpose in, in all, all organizations. Uh, what you just said about you know uh, that you you want to be you you want to have someone who have seen different cycles. Throughout my career, you know, I, I found my best learning was through interacting with people who either have seen different cycles or have, have gone through studies to think through what could happen. And it's almost like became a mentorship. So if I was, you know, building a family office now for myself or I'm building an endowment, the first thing, the first thing probably you know, I would require is to really have people who have experience be in one shape or form have a say in what's going on. Because this way, the younger ones can, 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 can get to build, but then they would run, their, run the idea by the guys who have seen different cycles. So it's almost like a, 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 like a perfect, perfect AI system. Somebody, yeah. you go and check with somebody, what, what would have happened if these things happened? Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, I mean, what I like about it is, you know, uh, back to the point that you don't need a lot of people. I actually think uh, individuals who are both um, top-down thinkers, asset allocators, for lack of a better word, right, um, and bottom up, bottoms up manager selectors married in the same person are, you know, the probably the rarest, but actually the most valuable. Essentially, Dave Swenson was that, um, remarkably so. But if you look at Dave Swenson's, um, uh, you know, the people that he trained, you know, the sort of tiger club, so to speak, some of those best investors are, came out of that. Like, and, and, and to the point that you don't need many, Paula Volent, who worked with David for years, then ran a, a small endowment, billion-ish plus Bowdoin College, more or less by herself with maybe an analyst or two. Her set of returns, if you look back over year in and year out for, for 15 plus years, were the best. They, they beat the bigger um, entities. Um, and she, you know, so she basically had to do everything. She had to pick every manager in every asset class. She had to run the top down as well. She had a tough board, Stan Miller and others on there. So um, 
like if you, the, I guess the takeaway is if you're a family office or an institution, it's possible to get it all in one or a small number of people. Um, and, and in fact, uh, uh, some of the best outcomes are that. It's hard to think of other businesses managing so much money where that's the case, right? You think of you need an army of professionals and analysts and expensive systems and everything. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case. Sometimes smaller is better. Sometimes more concentrated portfolios are better. Um, and uh, they can be done with relatively limited resources as long as those limited resources are really, really skilled. Yeah, and, and then you know you bring in you bring in AI. I I find from my previous uh, uh, experience, you know, the big organizations you end up having people not talking to each other, but there's yeah. so much knowledge that 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 is spread around so much. The challenge is how to get them to 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 speak to each other, and naturally because it's so big and it's it's a it's a different incentives you don't have that uh, uh, benefit maybe that's maybe that's probably you know like a the version 3 3 3 3.0 or like i remember when when we when we moved from adia to adip that was was 2.0 and trying to get everybody inside an investment committee and argue things out and what have you uh, Naturally, there are certain people who, whose voice was stronger, so they versus others who did not want to participate as much. And then when I when I went out to set up Liwa, I really wanted to you know small is better, and I wanted to break down break down that that you know your culture whereby the, there is somebody who comes in, you really digest all of this, and then you go and discuss it. Uh, uh, and now with AI, if you think about it, man, that's uh, like just as you were describing to me earlier on, how you know with AI you get now to be your productivity quadruples if you think about it. You yeah, can, you can yeah, bringing the bringing the AI in is an interesting facet because I guess you know what I was referring to earlier when I said um, the endowment approach, for lack of a better word. Um, should evolve where, you know, I think my point there was don't take the same heavy fee active manager approach to the entire portfolio. Pick your shots, I guess is what it says, right? Like maybe half the pool is more or less passive, cheap liquid because you can concentrate the returns, the bang for the buck, so to speak, in the other part of the portfolio. And that liquid have actually more than adequately you know, generates a, enough of a return um, you're, uh, to free up the ability to um, excel at the, in the areas, the asset classes, the applications that matter. AI brings a similar facet in, right? If you don't have to write a quarterly report um, or, you know, or you have an AI module that can save you dozens of hours in different facets, um, frees you up for the time, the hours, the trips that really matter, where you can really move the needle. Um, I, you know, what's exciting is as as the technology evolves, is where 
where the where it can inject efficiency into these organizations and the people involved. And then to your point, you were saying earlier, it's up to those people to actually apply that extra time wisely uh, in areas that are going to make the most difference in the outcome of their job, their role, the pool of capital that they're managing. Exciting. You know, I, 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 I am excited about the fact that there is volatility. So with volatility, you know, active versus passive is going to differentiate itself. I'm excited about all of this AI. So there is no limitation. We can do so much, so much stuff. It in fact, you know, like uh, it can retool me faster and bring in the young generation and get them up to speed much faster. Yeah. And I think somebody in the middle, he they need to also kind of join join that party. Dave, uh, that was insightful. Uh, uh, thank you. Always great uh, having a conversation with you, Hashem. All right. Thank you. All right.